You're listening to the Lean Six Sigma for Good podcast. We help you learn how Lean and Six Sigma concepts can be applied to nonprofits, NGOs, and not-for-profit organizations. Visit us at LeanSixSigmaForGood.com. This is an interview I did with Reed and Maria back in October of last year. It took me a little longer to get this one released because there were some technical issues I was working through on the audio. We did a Zoom call and at times the internet was slow, so the words broke up a little bit or they're hard to hear. I tried to clean it up as best I could, but hopefully it's not disruptive to you hearing the interview. I think you'll really enjoy this one. It's got a couple different perspectives from Maria as a volunteer of multiple nonprofits and from Reed who had worked in corporate and then as now running a nonprofit and how they apply process improvement techniques to that work. So I think you'll really enjoy this interview. I've got uh, two guests here. One's a good friend of mine, Maria. She invited Reed to come along and talk about uh, process improvement and a lot of different unique applications. Good to see you again, Maria. Do you want to give us a quick intro for those that don't know you and your process improvement background, sure. and then I'll go to Reed. Hi, Brian. Uh, I'm Maria Gerzanka. My background is really in supply chain management, but I got into process improvement more than 20 years ago through work, met Brian through a group here in Portland called Lean Portland. I've met Reed by way of volunteering for another group called Minds Matter and uh, connected with Brian because we were a group of people in Lean Portland that wanted to take these process improvement skills and bring them to some of our volunteer work out in the community. So now I'm a independent consultant doing process facilitation and training and some coaching. Um, but I also volunteer as a co-chair of my neighborhood association, which is not the same as a homeowners association, but it's part uh, kind of a supplementary part of the city government here in Portland, Oregon. Awesome. Brian, am I leaving out anything key? Not yet, but I'm sure we'll we'll get into some okay. of the details. That's a great intro. Uh, yeah, happy to introduce myself as well. Thanks for having me on, Brian, and good to see you again, Maria. Um, so my background, uh, like Maria's, is in supply chain management. I worked at Columbia Sportswear for about five years and Adidas uh, here in Portland for about five years doing kind of inventory management and warehousing, warehouse optimization and flow and basically just making sure boxes are getting to the to the right places. Um, did some Lean Six Sigma work as a part of that at Adidas and had been volunteering at Minds Matter Portland, um, where I'm now paid executive director and sort of made this pivot away from supply chain and into the nonprofit space uh, professionally uh, just last year, actually. Um, so Minds Matter Portland is a it's an academic mentoring program. We work with high school, sophomores, juniors, seniors who come from low-income backgrounds and know that they want to go to a four-year college. So we take them through this three-year program where every week they meet with us and we basically guide them through the process of getting into college. And they're incredible students and just really quite rewarding. Reed, you and I first connected on process improvement while I was a mentor at Minds Matter. And I think there was some kind of committee going on. And then we both realized that we had, because at that time, I think you were still at Columbia or maybe Adidas. And we had some crossover in what we were doing outside of our volunteer work. That sounds right. Yeah. 
our organization has about a hundred volunteers at a time, amazing volunteers like Maria and just the, the sort of cross pollination of ideas and interests is pretty amazing. How did you get involved Maria with this organization? I think I saw a flyer in my neighborhood to come to a information session about what the program was about and they were looking for volunteers. Prior to that, I had been volunteering with SMART and so I would show up at a school and read books with young, much younger children. And that was fun. And it was maybe a couple hours a month or something like that. And I was looking for something a little bit more um, extensive. So I went to the info session and ended up being a mentor for three years, every Saturday. Reed, how did you end up getting into the executive director role? So I started volunteering with Minds Matter Portland in 2011 and started as a, a mentor, just like Maria. So working with sophomores who are you know, kind of shy, but super intelligent and super ambitious, just fun kids to work with and inspiring to, to get to help. Did that for a few years. And then I was the person sort of in the classroom leading the activities. And then the founder and executive director at the time, Graham Covington, um, saying, hey, I I think uh, I think you would be good at this executive director role, and it's probably easier than what you're doing now, managing the classroom. the The latter has not come to to be truth, but I worked with him for about a year, kind of understanding, getting to know the financials and the foundations and the the donors to the organization. Um, and then he has stepped back and is now the chair of our board. So I was volunteer executive director for about four years, and then. Uh, last year, we made the really exciting step to go from an organization with zero paid staff to now having two or having had two paid staff for the last year um, and just means the world in terms of capacity and ability to write down something that you want to do and then actually do it instead of kind of perpetually add things to this like to do list. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then you were when you were a volunteer, you were working somewhere else and then spending free time kind of trying to manage and run the organization. Um, yep. So that's, yeah, that's a big transition. Had you had any other nonprofit experience before that? I had been a big brother with big brothers, big sisters, and then had just been kind of community involved, um, but not typically not through a, a longstanding relationship, like had done some work at the food bank and things like that. Not a board member or any other board position in another nonprofit? No. Yeah. So that's pretty big jump too. not only to, uh, to it's almost like running an organization, but it's a nonprofit with its own you know, structure and system that maybe it's similar to what you've experienced at work, but could be a little different too. Yeah, quite different. I mean, for the longest time, so Minds Matters was started in 2006. This is our 18th year. It's a very well-established organization. It continues to be just miraculous that we have 50 students who are willing to invest time on Saturdays to come in and put the time in all with this singular focus around getting into four-year colleges. And then it's equally miraculous to have again volunteers like Maria who come in every Saturday, work closely with those students every week for three years. There's a lot of people and parts moving around. And I think for the longest time, it just sort of worked because you gave it a, a, a rough amount of structure. And it went, but I think once we started to formalize it and started to have two people in staff, at first you realize all the things you 
you could do and then all the things you should have been doing. I think more than anything, it's just making the experience really positive and highly effective and efficient and leveraged for the students and the volunteers is 98% volunteer run. And the most important part of the organization, as with many organizations, nonprofits especially, is just being good at recruiting and retaining and leveraging your volunteers. Do either one of you want to talk through that big picture process map of kind of what the student goes through over those three years? I think that might be helpful. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, uh, the basics are that students start their sophomore year in the fall. They come in on Saturdays for two hours in the mornings. We're, we're meeting in a location in Northeast Portland. The students work with tutors specifically on math and writing support. They have a curriculum that they go through. The goal is to get more comfortable and fluid in their writing and math skills. We feed them lunch for 30 minutes, and then they connect one-on-one with mentors in the afternoon. And those afternoon mentoring sessions are a lot of things around career exploration, college exploration, goal setting, some professional skills, networking, uh, interview skills and interview prep. And then the kind of cherry on top for the students each year is that in the summer, those sophomores all will go to a two to three week on-campus immersive college program or a number of them will fly across the country and go to Brown or fly down to USC or Stanford. And they take these classes where they stay in the dorms, they eat in the cafeterias, they get to live uh, college life for two or three weeks. They come back in the fall ready for the next year of Minds Matter. They're hopefully reinvigorated about the prospect of college, feeling like it's a place that they belong. And then especially for the seniors, when they come back they're really motivated to get into the college application process. So over a three-year period, each of our students will go through two of those immersive on-campus summer programs. That's actually a, one of the bigger parts of our, of our budget. We find it to be really transformative and something that sets us apart from a lot of other college access programs. And then I guess fast forward to the very end, we take our students through a really intensive college application support process. They all get into four-year colleges. They get an average of probably 96 to 97% financial aid covered uh, from the sticker price of college. And then we have a graduation ceremony in the spring where the, the volunteers and their students get to sort of reminisce about what their journey has been like. And there are a lot of fears and hugs and celebration. Um, and it's, it's definitely the most emotionally impactful part of the whole experience. So Brian, we reconnected in May for the soiree event, and there were several students that had gone through the program who are not students at, at this point anymore, or they're, some of them were in college. I think some were finished. They told a lot of their stories at that event, and um, there were some people that I had volunteered with like 10 years ago that were also attending. Um, so it was really cool to see the whole thing go full circle and you know, continue to hear those stories, you know, you do volunteer for something 10 years ago. And um, just to get the invitation to attend this event from Reed, I could tell from the invitation itself that they must have done some process improvement internally to being able to send out these messages because it wasn't always something that I heard of or was aware of after the fact. Yeah, it has been a busy year. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, right, go ahead. No, I was just, uh, Maria, you were talking about, you said 10 years ago you had started and then. So when you start volunteering there, it's like the preference is to stay with the program for three years so that you're seeing, that you're staying with the same students from their sophomore okay. year to their senior year. Sometimes it's like a, a 
two to one mentor to student. But I, we had some mixing up of the groups at that point. So I think I finished in 2013. So it must have been around 2010 when I had started. And I still kept in, in touch with some people, but we move on to other volunteer projects. So I wasn't as connected before, but um, it was just easy to connect and attend this particular event this year. How does the connection with like these other schools work? Um, is there a bigger network of schools? Because that seems like a pretty big logistics thing to kind of coordinate. You said it's a big budget item too. So, um, so Minds Matter Portland is one of 14 Minds Matter chapters. So there are Boston, New York, um, Southern California, Bay Area, and a number of, of places in between. Um, so Minds Matter New York was the first chapter. The, the chapters all have the same mission statement, you know, common goals. We're all trying to get our students into four-year colleges with little to no debt. Um, and then the national organization manages a number of partnerships with uh, some schools like Brown and um, Harvard and, and many others where they will have their existing summer program partnerships or opportunities. And then we can leverage those relationships to either get some discounts or some some reserve slots. So there's some there's some central operations that are managed out of uh, the New York National Department or national function. Um, but there's also a lot of autonomy between the groups. Um, and really the goal is just to kind of experiment and and evolve and you know the college access landscape is certainly ever changing. Uh, but probably the most consistent thing that the chapters work together on is just around volunteer recruiting and retention and just the the basics of managing humans, both the students and the volunteers, and how you can make sure you're appreciating and, and retaining uh, both the students and the volunteers, because that's, it's ultimately just a, it's a human to human organization. Um, we sort of joke sometimes that if you get a student who is motivated and wants to get help, and a volunteer who's motivated and wants to give help to students that want help, then you just sort of put them together for, for a few hours each week and you let the, the magic happen. I remember a big fringe of like lists of summer programs that I think people had gone to before. And we sort of knew like what, what kind of areas people were interested in and going through that spreadsheet in those Saturday sessions to help students kind of select or navigate that list and check out different programs at different schools or look up different programs that weren't even on the list based upon what they were interested in. I think we've successfully killed that spreadsheet, spreadsheet. and have, have, have recreated some others, but it, it brings up a, an important point, Maria, which is that we had a person who was running the summer programs work for about 12, 12 years. And it was kind of a black box and she did all of this work and it wasn't really written down, but she was great at it. And then a couple of years ago, she said, I can't really do this anymore. And we're realizing that we were not in a good position to transfer that knowledge or even know what that knowledge was. We're trying to be honest with ourselves about the fact that we shouldn't really be expecting people to do more than two to three to four hours a week at any point. We should be able to design roles that are that size. We should be able to design roles that are really clearly laid out and should be able to design roles that don't have a ton of ambiguity to them. And that that's not only just practically beneficial, but it makes the volunteer recruiting process simpler. It makes the volunteer retention process simpler. Um, and that if we're not, if we don't have all like an emphatic approach to 
writing down at least a few basic things that we do, then we're not doing our job. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, similar or familiar in many volunteer-run organizations. So, for example, like the Neighborhood Association, the Neighborhood Associations in Portland were established in, I think, 1973 or something. And my particular neighborhood was annexed into the city around 1980. It could be 86. I, I might be wrong. And for a long time, there were stretches of somebody running the Neighborhood Association for, you know, seven to 10 years. And that knowledge, you know, they had the time or were just very invested in, in getting everything done. And like you're saying, it was this mysterious box of, I don't know how that thing runs. Well, that creates a process problem because we have, you know, all of the knowledge in one box. And as these are volunteer roles, as they turn over and people's, you know, life changes and you need to move on to something else. It's very difficult to pass it on to the next group of people. So like our board on the Neighborhood Association is consistently changing, but that's kind of what my focus has been on making it so that when the board members change over, it's easy for somebody to step in, figure out what's going on, decide what they want to focus on and be able to run with it. How did you get involved with that Neighborhood Association? It's something that I kind of knew existed, maybe just from hearing about neighborhood associations in the news here. I like put it on my calendar when their meetings were, and I never, ever went until COVID happened. There was a lot going on politically at the time, and I felt this kind of inability to have an impact at a higher level. And the first thing that came to mind for me was like uh, a Gemba walk. You know, if I'm walking around to part in my jargon, the Gemba Walk or actual place where things are happening, you know, I can walk around my block or around 10 blocks in my neighborhood and see what's really happening. And the meetings were now on Zoom. So I just Zoomed in one night and met these people that were working on things that were happening in my own backyard. So um, from there, I kind of became a board member and like the other organizations I'm part of uh, just try to help organize some processes. And I, I'm sure you often find yourself being the only one who's sort of beating that drum. Maria, I know I, I find that sometimes. What seems to be most successful for me is to not, like if I say the word process, people get scared. So I try to find other ways to describe what I'm doing without saying the word process. Why don't we write this down so that next time we have to do this, we remember how we did it? Because I don't want to make it up again. I like that. Um, when Maria and I had lunch a few weeks ago, I was telling her that I'm also part of the, the PTA team at the elementary school where my kids go. And we've there's probably not an organizational type that is more sort of specifically transient than a PTA. Just like there's there's no one who's been in on a PTA for 10 years. It's the same kind of thing where if, if we're not almost laughing at the amount of times we're intentionally building process or writing things down so that we know how to do them next time, then we're probably not doing enough of it. So we're trying to use the same format that we use at Minds Matter, which is just a single page of somewhere between two and maybe eight checkboxes just to say, if you start with this before you do 
some spaghetti dinner or a Minds Matter graduation, then you're going to be in a better spot. Um, and then when I was describing this to Marie, I was also saying the hope is to do this for now and then to have some really robust version of a process document later. And then she said something like, do you think you'd ever do that more robust process document later? Is that a, probably not. So I think if we had the discipline to just say, we don't want anything more than just a comprehensive, broad collection of these simple, somewhat shallow documents. And we just define that as like outrageous success. And from a documentation perspective, then that kind of makes it feel achievable and a lot more exciting. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's my new mindset in process or writing things down so that you don't have to start from scratch next time. If you like this topic, please check out the Lean Six Sigma for Good book series with the subtitle Lessons from the Gemba. We have recently released volume two in paperback and ebook, and we will have the audiobook ready later in 2023. Volume one is already available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Within each volume, there are eight chapters written by different Lean Six Sigma practitioners who have applied their skills to nonprofits, NGOs, not for profit organizations, and government agencies. Proceeds from the book sales are split evenly and go to the nonprofit selected by each author. Go to leansixsigmaforgood.com or search Amazon for Lean Six Sigma for Good to find the book series. These books make a great gift for your process improvement team or someone you know who works at a not for profit organization. I like the idea of it being comically simple. I'm going to take that back to our processes that we're trying to write down. You know, I think that's a really good point because I think that's where it scares people off, even the people creating the documents. It's that overwhelm of, oh my gosh, the detail I'm going to have put into this is, I don't even want to start, or I, I got to have carve out all weekend to, to build this thing out. And if you're starting with just a simple checklist, one page, no more than eight or 10 items, that doesn't seem so bad. You can almost rattle it off the top of your head and someone can write it out. Mm -hmm. yeah. And now you've got a form, you know, and that probably has more applicability to even the for-profit businesses that get kind of overwhelmed by this documentation. And I've seen some really massive documentation efforts that I don't know if those were helpful. <laughs> Think you're on yeah, I mean, when I came from Adidas, we we all of our departments had some sort of objective to this is the quarter that we're going to process improve and write it down. And it was like every quarter we were going through the the end of quarter goals with my boss, and she would say, "Yeah, no, that's fine." We, we sort of knew we weren't going to get to this, and it would just happen quarter after quarter. Uh, at Intel, they do an amazing job because they have these. SPs that are immensely detailed. We have a lot of Intel volunteers at Minds Matter. So it's it's interesting to occasionally interact in process improvement dialogues with with those folks. We almost always just say, okay, that's too much. And you have to have a culture that is really mature to enforce that or, you know, drive that discipline. And you have people that maybe are there 20 years or more built, you know, working in that culture and showing up every day because they're paid to be there, you know? So I think you can do that in some organizations like that, but yeah, with a very transient group of volunteers and uh, yeah, I can see that's going to be very, very difficult to get even that level of detail and even the flexibility that you need seems so rigid. I think that scares people off a bit with it's so detailed. I must not have the freedom or ability to do anything different. I have to follow it step by step. And I don't, 
I think we lose some of that creativity and some flexibility with that as well. Yep. Right. You could put in the checkpoint checkbox, do this user best judgment as to the, the way to do this, but do this or this, <laughs> do this or this or this. Yeah. And, and I think that also points to like the different use of a mature organization like with, with Intel, but I think it also depends on the, the product that they're making, right? So there in a highly technical manufacturing process, those that need to be very detail oriented is I imagine a very strong part of their culture. And Reed was just describing like some of the volunteer and student interactions as being the, the main thing. You but somebody who really wants to, a student who really wants to succeed and is very motivated with a volunteer who really wants to help, they sort of figure that out. Well, that's not as detail um, driven necessarily as a high tech manufacturing process. So I think that's something to think about in terms of like, well, what are you making? And what is the right amount of process understanding that goes along that is going to be supportive of that particular thing that you're producing? Yeah, there's almost a right way to do things at Intel, but you know, you've got two people with different approaches with different needs that change every time. You can't have a right way to do something because uh, it's going to vary. It's it's too much uh, uniqueness from the teacher or the mentor and the student. So, and if it is not done exactly the same way, the downside is, all right, maybe we learn something. Maybe it figures something positive. Maybe it's it's a little inefficient, but we'll get back on track soon. But at Intel, they might lose a million dollars if you skip a step. The, the, the consequences are that, you know, it's almost like there is a, a, a set way to do it here. It's, there's not really a set way. It's going to vary. And so we need that flexibility. I, and I would even go a step farther in saying you must do it differently with every student in terms of the way that you build these relationships. I mean, the, the whole organization is dependent on these strong bonds that are formed between the mentors and the students. The students gain trust to the point where they're willing to disclose some of the challenges that they're facing so that the mentors can actually help them out or they can, the students kind of let them into the behind the scenes of their families and then the mentors can understand what are the most important consideration factors when selecting a college. And if they don't know all of that, then they're not going to be let in and they're not going to be as helpful. So we just had our our mentor orientation section where, where we're talking about how to form relationships and the mindsets and skills and knowledge for how to form these relationships. The loudest, clearest message is you have to just be open to whatever students tell you. You ask open-ended questions and then you listen intensely and compassionately and you build your approach based on what they're saying and you build the pace of your approach based on what they're saying. And this is not you saying like, oh, I've got three different methods for forming relationships. Let me figure out which one's going to work with you. It's just like, I'm going to build a method for how to form a relationship based on what you either say or signal. It's, it's an outcome that happens through the relationship, but the relationship is like the primary thing. We have the privilege of being able to step back and say, okay, we're trying to get humans to connect with each other for some other goal how to do that speaking of that does i would imagine that sometimes the student realizes that's not what they want to do. like if the goal is to get into college they might through this process realize i don't know if i want to do that anymore i thought that's what i was going after as i'm talking through and understanding career choices and 
options and getting feedback and mentoring from somebody, maybe I change my mind. I don't know if that happens very often. Going back to your point of the relationship and whatever they're trying to accomplish is really the outcome because they're figuring out and they're getting some guidance along the way. And most of the time, it sounds like it's going to end up in trying to get into college. But does that happen at all? It happens a little bit. There are some students who realize partway through their three-year Minds Matter journey that either college or Minds Matter isn't for them. And some students who, instead of going straight to a four-year college, go to a maybe two-year and then aspire to transfer to a four-year college. Some students will take a gap year with the, again, intention of going to a four-year college. Mm-hmm. After that, it doesn't always happen. Um, I think, I don't know if you the daily episode from a few weeks ago is like really questioning the fact that college is becoming a less aspirational destination, especially along party lines, and just really breaking down the different returns on investment for different demographics and for different sticker prices for college. It's not an obvious decision, um, but again, it starts with really that relationship with the student and their parents. If the student's happy with the outcome, I think that's Really, it could be the measure of success, you know, is really, are they getting what they wanted and happy with the choices they're making and feeling like this is the right thing for me now that I've gotten all this support and help. So, yeah, you're right. I think yeah. that is a, something that was never doubted, I think, when we were growing up. It was kind of like a no-brainer. If you want a good job, you go to college. But it was a, much more affordable. And so the return on investment seemed much more clear. Maybe share a few examples of some of the things that I like the the process kind of checklist or overviews. One thing that comes to mind, again, it harkens back a little bit to the, the human element of this. In the past, before we had paid staff, we didn't really have the ability to stay on top of potential issues with students and families and home life as we could. And we've now set ourselves a really strong expectation of saying, if we notice something or hear about something that seems concerning in terms of attendance or student not speaking up as much as they used to, that we will take the step and have chat with their mentors and chat with the student and their parents and just have a really open-ended dialogue about what's happening and whether any help is needed and make it abundantly clear that, that we're there to be a resource. Um, so that's, in some ways, that's kind of a like a soft thing, right? But we've we've built this attendance tracking spreadsheet where if somebody's late or if they leave early and we have little notes documenting why they weren't there or if they told us they weren't going to be there. And then we have this once a week process where our program director and I sit down and we go through and we say, what happened in the last week? What happened in the last couple of weeks? What trends do we see? It's Monday. Who do we need to call? Who do we need to talk with by the end of the the week. Sometimes you're pulling a string that will reveal other issues or interpersonal issues with volunteers and students. Um, so it's, it's just kind of applying this process framework. Again, not complicated, but intentional to the idea of, hey, our students should all be present and engaged, and we should be able to see them looking like this is a valuable and productive use of their time. I almost think about it as like root cause analysis. Like, there's something happening at the surface level. And because that trust is built now, there's an opportunity to try and go into the next level wise of what's really going on. What is happening at home? What's happening at school? What's happening 
with their friends. Something is blocking their progress or their ability to make the next step or progress, or they're not acting right and getting to that root issue so that it can be removed or addressed if, if possible, so they can kind of continue moving forward again. Um, I think that's so key because you could just keep going at it without knowing that deeper issue and you'll never uncover that. You know, when there's struggles with, they can't get a square meal, it's going to be a hard time for them to learn and memorize and make progress on things. So then you help get that resolved and all of a sudden progress picks up again. So yeah, I see that that's yeah. almost like critical to their success. Yeah, I think, you know, our, our core metric is getting students in matriculated into college with a high amount of financial aid and a very low out-of-pocket cost. So we sort of, we have this number to say if a student's total out-of-pocket cost is five or $6,000 or less, and they're into a great school, and we sort of say, check, they've, they've met that. The lagging indicator of success is whether they then persist and graduate through college. And that's you know, most of them do. We're about 90% graduation rate, which is great. Yeah. Um, but if something, if something goes wrong there, you're, you're not really in a position to, to affect change. Um, and I think that attendance engagement is really the leading indicator of then those two subsequent success points. Yeah. Very cool. And so that was something you kind of implemented recently. It was like uh, maybe more rigor into that attendance and tracking that and using that as feedback and reviewing that metric. Yeah. Last, last fall. Yeah. Cause I think a, a lot of times people will look for things to track, but it's, you know, very lagging indicator of progress. Like how did they do on this assessment? But the early indication of the attendance may be what is a key success factor that you can see that heading in the wrong direction and address it before it gets to the point of the scores coming in and they're not showing up and the, yeah, the lagging stuff. So yeah, that's great. Yeah. And, and the difference, two students can miss a session and one of them could miss it because they're part of a statewide mock trial performer activity. And they've told us about it a month and a half in advance and they're working with their mentor to catch up on what they miss. And another student could get up in the morning and just say, eh, I don't want to go to Minds Matter and not tell us. And the fact that sometimes those two outcomes used to be that we didn't really know the difference between yeah. the causes of those two outcomes in the past was sort of scary. So Brian, you tuned in on root cause analysis. What was going through my mind when Reed was describing this was a daily management system. So, you know, how are we doing today? What are the things that we need to follow up on? How are our processes all working? I kind of think of that, like, Gemba walk around my neighborhood as part of that, although I still have a lot of continuous improvement to do uh, here. One of the challenges in, in this particular organization and all of the neighborhoods in general is, like, we should be representing all the people that live in the neighborhood. That's 13,000 plus people. And I probably only interact with dozens on a regular basis. It's still trying to navigate how to be effective at that. And, you know, I have certain entry points. We have like a, a couple of meetings per month. So we have a board meeting that's open to the public. We have a general meet, member meeting that's open to everyone as well. And a lot of it is like, sometimes it has to do with local politics. Sometimes it's a noisy business that a neighbor needs help with. 
a lot of times environmental issues, we have an industrial area that um, is on one side of our neighborhood. Sometimes it has things to do with the schools. And so you really no, never know what is going to bubble up at the time. And that's where I think these like one pagers would be helpful. And we have somebody who their area of expertise is in like land use and transportation and understanding city ordinances. Like where can we actually do something? Or sometimes it's, you know, just in some ways making a lot of noise about something because there is a issue going on and if we can band together to approach that people are more willing to listen so trying to capture my daily management system is trying to capture all of those issues that are going on and apply some kind of meaningful filter to say here's where we should be focusing our attention right now and it does shift a lot with you know sometimes whatever's in the paper Something as I thought about politics, I know mean, it's not like you're in politics, but you kind of are because it's a representation in your area, but you're voicing concern for a larger group and you may not have all their voices. How do you get those 12,000 people voices all the time to know, is this really a big deal or not? Is this a concern? Is it uh, of a few vocal people that are carrying the weight of this? What do most people think? is? You know, then you get into sampling and randomized sampling, or is it a skewed, inconsistent sample of people? And we're going a lot through a lot of effort here because uh, five people are really upset about it, but most of the people in that neighborhood are not that concerned. I think that would be really tricky of, of, of thinking through the data and the voice of the customer part of this. It's hard because most of the data collection on a citywide basis is like, distributed with the census. So you've got either brand new data, and this last one had a lot of different footnotes on it because of the collection process, or you're working with 10-year-old data. The collection, you know, they do like listening sessions when they're about to do a project in the city somewhere. So we try to participate in those. But a lot of times you don't see the results for, of that project for 10, 20 years. So there's a lot of like looking to, you know, especially if it comes to street improvements, sidewalk improvements, traffic rerouting, all of these kind of things are way down the road projects, uh, so speak. It's hard sometimes to be very specific about things, but to know that our main purposes are really around uh, livability, neighborhood and civic engagement. So there is a bit of like long-term thinking and, you know, I try not to get overexcited about noise that bubbles up in the short term and try to keep like a longer range picture on it to know that, you know, we do have an important voice with the city and let's use it for good. I was also thinking I might be in your data still. Yes. 2020, because yeah. I think, yeah, the census came through 2020. I was still living there. In your neighborhood, so I still have a voice somewhat. Yes, <laughs> which is uh, in my little neighborhood fact sheet. Yeah. <laughs> now, on the on the survey topic, that that reminds me of some of the work that we've done recently at Minds Matter. So we we've always had an end of year survey that we send to students and volunteers, and it was sort of partially taken. We wouldn't give it as thorough a read through, and it wouldn't be as thoroughly addressed as um, we might want. And we implemented a pretty simple and, and effective, especially in hindsight, pivot to say students and volunteers, you're going to do the surveys while we're in session. So we just carve out 15 minutes 
everybody's in there doing the survey and anyone who's in the room looking around is thinking, okay, this is the time that we do the survey. Uh, and then we had gosh, probably three 90 minute review periods with our leadership team where we went through and just pulled out the trends and talked through all the responses to each little section and just tried to break it into a handful of actionable things. And by the end of it, it felt just very appropriate as the, as the response and kind of like a duh. Well, obviously you should just listen, look at all the feedback, figure out what's most consistent and actionable and then do it. But it's, it's hard uh, until you have a process around it. Mm-hmm. And it's probably other organizations I've worked with don't have that structure either. One client I'm working with right now, that was the thing. Let's get a survey going. It's been a couple of years. It's not regular process yet. It's not something we're building on to say, this is our annual time to kind of status where we're at. And then let's make sure that we're coming back to these questions and saying, are we making progress Mm -hmm. incrementally, at least in that data to see that we're listening and showing our employees, if it's an employee survey or customer survey, that we are listening and doing something and they should notice that things are changing and see kind of that system working. Like you said, that it's intentional. A lot of organizations struggle with that more than I kind of realized. Yeah, we even have some grant applications. So we'll you know, we'll be filling out a grant application for a foundation. And some of them go as far as asking us to describe our surveying or feedback gathering process and how to handle it and respond to it. I think that's, that's a, sort of a nice nudge where if a foundation wants to encourage that sort of behavior, even just asking the question allows, forces people to think through it a little bit. And they're, of course, welcome to spread their dollars more to organizations that have at least a process that they describe as more robust than, than others. Even talking through this right now, I'm like, oh, we could just administer our own survey and leave that as like a Google form that people could, that the next board and the next board and the next board could continue to gather data on. So I'm going to steal that and the one pager piece. And it's also reminding me too of when you were talking earlier, Reed, you know, I do process improvement professionally. I've worked as an employee mostly for for profit companies. But I also learned a lot, you know, just by bringing myself to a volunteer experience and having that process improvement mindset, you really end up learning a lot about how to apply these different kind of principles in different situations. By having this conversation here, I'm thinking of even more ideas of ways to simplify what we're doing at the Neighborhood Association or Lean Portland. It never stops. Yep, totally agree. I mean, uh, the actually the job I had even before Columbia was working for a uh, in an industrial supply distribution warehouse, mm-hmm. to sort of optimizing process there. You wander around and you and you see it and think you you build this mindset around being able to tell when something isn't going right, either observing it with your eyes or reading through an email and sort of the pain that someone experiences. Um, if you just bring that to any organization, even if you don't instantly know how to fix it, just being able to tease out something that is not going right is is pretty important. Uh, and you know, for us, that typically means some volunteer that is either unclear on what is happening, just not their fault, it's the lack of a process, um, or some interpersonal conflict that ex- is existing because of, again, a lack of clarity somewhere. 
that's a part of it that's nice that like any process improvement that we're putting in place the goal is to make someone happier or less frustrated or feel like their work is more rewarding or that the outcomes are then better it's not a far leap from we need to dig into this to work on it like exactly why are we doing this very cool anything else you wanted to share or i guess another thing that comes to mind is that we as a pta we have tons of of peer organizations who are doing the same work as minds matter portland we have tons of peer organizations that are doing the same work we never do enough best practices sharing it's a shame and it seems like it's something we should be able to just overcome with a little more willpower but there's not a process for it so no amount of no amount of willpower is going to just make it happen it's just something we need to at least fully recognize and then try to define some really simple ways to pick pick a topic or pick a specific even decision point maybe that that might be the easiest possible thing to engage and then connect with some other organizations who are always eager and happy and friendly to share mm-hmm. ideas i know we were talking maria about how do we connect in some of these nonprofits doing process improvement and so they can connect and talk to each other and we can kind of get out of the way and let them just say you know figure out just like we've been doing today, oh, that's a great idea. I want to try that. Or how do you handle this situation? It's not specific to their organization, really. It's just the common things of how do you do surveys? How do you get feedback? What do you do with volunteers that's working well? How do you recognize volunteers? Like Some of those things are just generic across the board. And they're also really applicable to employees and managers at for-profit. So there is a lot of general stuff that people struggle with and finding other people who are going through that struggle and have tips and ideas is really, really powerful. And everybody loves sharing the ideas also. Just start with that as you don't need to feel guilty about extracting ideas from people. Two comments I want to make on that. I think, and this is not specific to nonprofits, but when we get a long list of things to do and we kind of put our blinders on and and stay in our own lane, so to speak, about I need to get these done. It's harder to get out there and connect with other people. So I think, you know, making that a priority and part of your regular walking around, checking in with other groups can be really helpful. And the idea around best practice sharing, you know, we used to do that inside of large companies, sharing, you know, best practice sharing between different departments or maybe different sites. And the same thing, like you said, read with the PTAs or the different Minds Matter chapters. For us, it's the neighborhood associations. There's a lot more that we could do to share, but we have to pick up our eyes and not only make time for it, but also make that connection and carve out a channel to the other organizations. Because in some cases, we've just had our head down for a long time, working hard at volunteering on top of whatever else it is that you're already doing. We had a community of practice that when I was working in corporate and we had a whole a person dedicated to just coordinating that whole system. And it was like community practice around industrial engineers and some around some technology. And then others were around process areas and they would meet monthly and they fund it with like free lunch. And so people would come in person or virtually like the headquarters had it in person, but then the off-sites would call in or, you know, remote into it. And then someone would give a presentation or a topic on something. And then the networking part was, you know, the really valuable part to 
So, you know, hear what other people are working on and then how are you solving that? What have you already learned? What resources out there? What person do I need to talk to about this? Or we already fixed that five years ago. This is what we did. I think there's a white paper somewhere, you know, it was hard to describe exactly what the outcome was going to be, but it shortcut a lot of the process and the struggle people had because they finally could figure out who's here's the people that know stuff or, and who to connect me with and what's going on in, in the organization. And I don't have to reinvent this. I thought that was a really cool system, but they, they really focused on making this a priority and, and it paid yeah. dividends probably a year or two after doing it. Right. Or you could argue that unless you do that, then you will never have you'll yeah. be in a constant time deficit. Like process improvement, right? If you don't carve out some time to do it, you will always be reacting. So yeah, very true. Well, awesome. Um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Uh, anything else you wanted to share? Maybe advice for people working in a nonprofit or potential volunteers? What can they do to bring to the table? Uh, maybe help with documentation. That sounds like one takeaway here. Any other advice? We'll, we'll, we'll talk specifically about nonprofits, either as volunteer or working as a board member or executive director or a volunteer in an organization. I think I would just say it's all it's all people, right? And yeah, trying to keep things as simple and clear as possible. Our new national CEO has a phrase, uh, clarity is kind. And I think that goes a long way. If you think like, oh, I want to be a kind person, then okay, be a clear person in everything you do. I think that transcends a lot of different functional areas for sure. I would just say that there's a lot of organizations that are looking for volunteers. So if you have a special interest in any particular area, probably an online search could help, but also just like walking around your neighborhood, looking at signs in people's windows. That's how I got connected with Minds Matter in the first place, or the bulletin board at the coffee shop, the neighborhood newspaper, those are all great places. And if you're interested in process improvement, I'm sure that that organization wants your help. Agreed. How can people get a hold of you? I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn, Maria Gerzanka, or um, my email is maria at ideamaria.com. G-R-Z-A-N-K-A. Yep. The best way to get in touch with me is probably going to the Minds Matter website, mindsmatterportland.org. Uh, and then we have a like, connect via info at mindsmatterportland.org that goes right to me apply to be a volunteer on the website <laughs> all right awesome thank you both so much i think that's been really helpful yeah. and useful and look forward to reconnecting and seeing you all in person sometime yeah let us know yeah. when you're back in portland okay definitely will yeah love to okay. get a, a, a beer brian thank you for having me yeah. on maria great to see you again you too okay thanks all right bye bye, bye. Are you interested in learning more about Lean and Six Sigma? Or are you looking to expand your existing skills to apply them to environmental impacts at your work or in the local community? Check out our free online course called Lean Six Sigma and the Environment on thinkific.com. We'll teach you about the Lean Forms of Waste and Waste Walks, which stands for Water, Air Emissions, Solid Waste, Toxins, and Energy. We'll go over examples of reducing electricity and solid waste teach you how to involve your facilities and environment safety and health personnel. We'll provide guidance on how to green your 5S and lean Kaizen events and many other tools specific to finding environmental opportunities. Learn more at leansixsigmaenvironment.org.